exciting episode today because we have our first ever guest. What do you want to tell what? us that is? Well, today we have a special guest who is my mother. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really weird way of saying it, but you know, I'm just going to roll with it. <laughs> it really was, Brooke. <laughs> <laughs> She's not just a mom. She's also a therapist. Yes, I am. We have a quick little bio just to introduce her. Uh, we have Lorraine graduated in 2013 with her Bachelor of Business Management degree and went to achieve her Master's of Arts in Clinical Psychology with an emphasis on marriage and family therapy in 2022. Jeez, that is a mouthful. Amazing. You, busy. <laughs> you did it well, though, Brooke. Very, very good. <laughs> Lorraine has been a practicing therapist for two years in various settings, including a domestic violence shelter, addiction recovery, a Catholic private school, and currently works in a private practice as one of two therapists with a specialty in trauma. Lorraine is currently certified as an EMDR trauma specialist and a level one Gottman therapist for couples. Lorraine's passion for becoming a therapist was sparked when her parents became an emergency foster home for children waiting to be placed in permanent housing with a family or relative. Lorraine noticed a clear need for a higher level of care for these children and their families and was compelled to someday become a family therapist. Lorraine's very first job as a psychiatric nursing assistant was when she was 19 years old where she worked with psychiatrists and clients in a mental health facility. Wow. So please, <laughs> let's welcome my mother, Lorraine Sweetford. Oh, thank you, thank you. I'm so happy to be here today with you guys. It's going to be so much fun. I know, I'm so excited to chat with you. And that was a really impressive list. I didn't know half of that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you are actually. <laughs> well, I kind of snuck it in there, you know. I just kind of did it on the down low, so you yeah. know. Yeah. You're so humble. You're like, I'm just gonna do all these things in the background. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that you had your first job in a psychiatric facility when you were 19. Yeah, very interesting. My brother worked there as a janitor, and then he he said, you know what, you'd make a great therapist, and I think I can get you in. And of course, we had to lie about my age, because I was 19, and you had to be 21. But uh, it was interesting the way that they kind of just looked the other way, and, yeah. and, I, got, and I got hired. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Times yeah. are totally different. I feel like that wouldn't fly these days, you know? Right. Like, yeah. Like the fact that you were just kind of able to sneak your way into that is pretty cool. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, no, you wouldn't see that happen today, especially in a mental health facility. Yeah, a lot of background checks. <laughs> For sure, yes, yes. We, we also didn't mention that you had a thriving career as a sales manager before getting into this uh, field of therapy, which I also find interesting because yeah. you've always been chasing success ever since I've known you, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that was really my big detour, I think, you know, it was it was meant to just be um, kind of just make money while I'm thinking about how to get into this mental health world and stay in it in some capacity and go back to school. But, you know, when you start um, making money and having all the perks of, you know, national, being a national sales uh, manager and a regional sales manager, there's a lot of perks in that. You get to travel everywhere, see a bunch of different cities and states and, you know, all the, all the events and, and trade shows and whatnot. So I kind of got addicted to the lifestyle for a, a little while, but I still had that pull. That pull was still there. I couldn't quell it. And it was something that just kept calling at me like, no, you really need to be living in the lane that you know will make you happy. And that was always going to be 
as a therapist. And before, when you were a sales manager, you were the family therapist in a lot of ways, like everyone in our family, even extended family, cousins, relatives, you're the person everyone calls for advice because, you know, even before you became a therapist, you always were, you know, wise in so many ways. And um, you're my main therapist. (laughs) (laughs) You're not supposed to admit that, Brooke. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, no, that's true. And, you know, but what really kind of kicked my butt and was a wake up call was, you know, advice is advice. But when you're when it's clinical therapy, that's a completely different world. And, uh, you know, going to school to learn the skill was was um, an eye opener because it's one thing to be able to use wisdom and advice, but it's a whole nother thing to really be able to help somebody work through problems from a clinical standpoint. So that for me was a, a was a pretty good eye opener. Oh, it's amazing. Well, we have some juicy questions for you today. Oh, Maybe. I'll have some juicy answers then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And as you know, our, our podcast is on codependency. So we don't know, we're mainly focusing on that, but mm-hmm. we're really excited for the insight you can um, bring to some of these questions. I think it'll help not only us, which really we started this podcast to help ourselves with our <laughs> dependency issues, mm-hmm. but it's going to help our listeners hear it from a clinical standpoint, since yeah. you now have the background and the tools to, um, to assist. So. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to that. I think this is a subject that a lot of people suffer in silence. And uh, yeah, and it doesn't really get addressed um, in the way that it should. So I'm, I'm not to say that I have all the answers, but I definitely can add what, what I know about it. So I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, because Brooke and I almost every episode eventually at some point say, well, you know, we're not experts, um, (laughs) but we're (laughs) saying things. So we're really glad to have someone who is an expert and has a lot of um, specialty in different areas that intersect with codependency, I think often like trauma, you know, et cetera. So I, I think that'll be really great. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. I think it'll, I think it will help too, to have that little bit of background there. Yeah. So with that being said, do you often work with people who struggle with codependency or have you gotten to that yet with your clients? Have you um, discussed that with anyone? I have actually, and it's interesting because, you know, codependency is, isn't in the DSM as a diagnosable affliction, you know, or, or anything that can be recognized as a true mental health disorder. Um, So when I get clients, they don't come to me for something that, that looks like codependency in their mind, it looks like depression, it looks like anxiety issues, um, and, or just in, in general, just relationship issues, or being stuck, or not knowing exactly how to be as a person or as a partner in a relationship. And then when I dig a little bit deeper, um, there's always, there is usually always an element of codependency um, that I see. So yeah, more and more, I'm starting to see it more. And I think that that the clients that are coming in are starting to have a little bit more of an awareness of it. Yeah, I was thinking that the other day, do you feel like codependency is on the increase or people Mm -hmm. just have more language to define it? You know, what what do you think about that? Because we're hearing about it all the time. It's in the zeitgeist now. Um, It's a good question. Yeah, Yeah. I'm just wondering. Yeah, I think it's that sneaky little outlier that clients didn't know they struggled with when they do come to therapy. And I think that they avoid um, actually that word, that title, those two words, because it can be connected to a sense of almost like shame where, you know, it's, it's had such a long, uh, such a long following in chemical dependency that um, it's hard to believe that anybody can be codependent. That's that's not either struggling with chemical dependency or or in the life of somebody else who's struggling with chemical dependency. So I think there is somewhat of a stigma 
around that. And I thought about that the other day and I thought, what is it that makes people avoid wanting to address codependency or be, be called a codependent? And I think that that is part of it is just that it is so tied to chemical dependency still um, that it's, it gets avoided a little bit too much. Yeah. That's what, when we, when we were doing our first episode, I think in defining codependency or trying to define it, um, cause it doesn't have one definition, but mainly when we were looking it up, it was related to enablers of somebody who has a chemical dependence. Right? Yes. Um, yes. Which Brooke and I don't, don't relate to. And so, right. yeah, it's interesting trying to like tease through the kind of myopic perspective of that is what it is in all yes. these books and articles and stuff. For sure. Yes. Even mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. um, the codependence anonymous meetings that I've been attending, you know, it's like they start off by talking, talking about how that's the origin of this issue where mm-hmm. it has to do with its link linked directly to addiction and, you know, enablers of addiction, but they also have been discussing that it's, it's very nuanced. It's more than that. Yeah. And so I think we're just now waking up to that as a society, that this issue is is much deeper and, and bigger yeah. than just addiction, you know? Yeah, it really is. And I mean, um, Melody Beadle's first book, Codependent No More, or I'm not sure if that was her first book, but the most impactful book that we learned a lot about codependency from her uh, definitely addressed more of a um addiction environment you know to to substance abuse and addiction and chemical dependency which it's now called but um her book really addressed the um the connection between the two and while it was a wonderful great book but it that was more of the focus of that book and i think that that's why people avoid it you know and don't want to talk about it yeah that, yeah, you're right, because that's one of the most famous things that displays codependency, and so if that's people's only, you know, interaction mm-hmm. with the word, that makes sense. But it's funny to me, because, that, you know, even in the CODA meetings, that they would every time talk about how this word or the idea of codependency originated with people who were enablers of someone with chemical dependency, because if I think about other things, it's like, okay, that story about, like, gravity, how it was discovered because of like an apple falling on someone's head it's like okay but we don't bring that up every time we talk about gravity (laughs) more than that there are other things so it's just funny that we continue to bring that up even though that's the way in that we found to discover this much larger topic right that is that's so true that's a great point yeah Yeah. (laughs) it is really funny like why do we keep talking about the origins let's talk about how else it you know shows up in our lives yeah Exactly. And, and the point I wanted to make about that whole, you know, stigma part is that it it is interesting when I bring it up in session with the client, that uh, they'll look at me like, oh, what do you mean? I, how, how dare you? <laughs> almost, almost very questioning about my view of them being codependent, because they have a sense about themselves. that's like, I'm, I'm strong and, and I've got a job and I'm, I'm work hard and I, I do good things and there's no way in the world I could be codependent, you know, but when you break it down and you start really looking at what it, what it means, it, it's not about that. It's not about whether or not somebody's still functioning in the world. You know, it's about, it's more about how they conduct their relationships. So. Yeah. And that kind of leads me into the next question because I was, thinking, you know, how how does codependency change the way someone sees themselves and someone sees the world around them? Because you're right, Brooke and I are very independent people. We like being alone. We are creative and responsible. We have a lot going for ourselves, you know, like, I I don't know. Amazing, attractive. I could just go. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, you you are all of those things. So I guess I just made me think, okay, well, how does that change the way you see yourself and change the way you see others you're in relationships with? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great question, Megan. Um, So codependency narrows the way that people see themselves in the world, and then they become focused on a person or a relationship. 
So if they are the rescuer for someone in their life who's in the deep throes of chemical dependency, um, it can be all encompassing and it can be consumed with fantasies of controlling the other person's behavior and leaving little left for themselves. That's usually when they lose their sense of self in that process. Um, so I've, I've often seen codependent clients in my office that explain, they explained to me that it feels like an kind of an out of body experience, almost like disassociate disassociation, um, when they're obsessing about the other person's behavior and codependents can, uh, come to therapy because they don't recognize themselves anymore. And that's kind of the basis of the issue is that they they lose themselves in this process and they feel spent and unappreciated. Um, the world around them can look smaller and a lot more difficult to navigate when they're looking through the lens of the rescuer because the resources are, are usually depleted. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And everything that you just said is completely how I've identified with codependency, which is like losing myself in another person, um, just completely making someone else the focus of my entire existence. And so that's what led me to, you know, discover my own codependency issues in the beginning is I was like, what's going on? Why don't I have any sense of like self in a way where I can just stand independently without not like, you know, caring about so much about what someone else is doing or thinking or feeling. But like we talked about before, it's not that I can't be on my own and independent as a person in general. It's not like I'm dependent on someone like we need to be like physically by each other all the time. It's more just like my emotions, my well-being was so linked up with this other person mm -hmm. that I was like, there's got to be some other issue going on here, which, you know, which yeah. kind of led me to discover codependency. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I did in my um, graduate studies, my capstone assignment was on Bowen theory, uh, Murray Bowen, who who discovered the theory of differentiation and how um, enmeshed or undifferentiated families or people in general basically are um, stuck in, you know, without him say, ever saying codependency or being codependent behavior, um, it really is a behavior that uh, you have a real tough time just individuating and understanding who you are, what your principles are, where the boundaries need to be, and how to respond to family um family disruptions, family discourse uh, in a way that where you still keep your sense of self while being interdependent with other family members instead of codependent. So um, it's really an art of being able to maintain your sense of self while you are in an interdependent relationship with somebody else. Interdependent. Inter interdependent being the ultimate thing to achieve, which is, you know, we have a healthy dependency on each other in the relationship, but it's, it's very much with a sense of self at the core. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's too hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like, um, that sort of, that word differentiation is really, hitting home like yeah. that word specifically because mm -hmm. I do feel like a lot of my like rescuing behavior um also comes from the idea that or the the feeling of like if I like something or say something or do something it has no meaning unless the other person sees it and acknowledges it and benefits yeah. from it or you know what I mean is that a part of that um, it, it is to a certain degree, as long as you're able to understand where they be, where you end and they begin rather than having, uh, the feeling that what this person does or says, or, um, how they react to you, uh, changes anything about your, your own personal sense of self. That's, that's what differentiation is really all about is the ability to hang on to 
um, your worldviews, what you what you know about yourself, what you're um, convicted to about who you actually are in the world um, without getting lost in in them. So that's it's I mean, it really does kind of nobody's ever said this that I know of, but it really does kind of align with self-dependence. I mean, uh, codependency definitely aligns with um, differentiation in that way. Yeah, it sounds linked for yeah. sure. But yeah. I get what you're saying too about needing that acknowledgement when mm -hmm. you are, you know, it's like, I need you to acknowledge what I'm doing here mm -hmm. right now. Otherwise it's going to drive me nuts. Yeah. And um, I feel like it was wasted time or I don't even care that this is happening or that I'm doing this unless you see it or respond yeah. to it or. Yeah. 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 Being able to do something uh, without getting that, that reward back or that acknowledgement back. That's, um, that's where you you are more differentiated where you're not connected to a reaction from somebody else connected to the reaction that's me for sure <laughs> that's and that's such a that's like a key word differentiation we should yeah. hold on to that because that is it's so key and i think we we need it as codependents mm -hmm. we need to be able to see where you start and stop and where i start and stop yeah you right know? right like that word helps me, I think, mentally um, imagine barrier that barrier. Yeah. yeah. Which is, I think, sometimes helpful. Like I really like visualizations for, you know, me too. Um, I don't know. Just for concepts. Concepts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm I'm with you on that. I, I like visuals too that way. But and so my visual when it comes to differentiation, just just so I can add this in a little bit here is that I imagine myself floating above the situation and looking back down on it with curiosity and open open heart and an open mind. Mm -hmm. Instead of being all in it with my mind, body, soul, and my heart being all in it, I've, I've chosen to float above it, look down on the situation and understand that I'm still here. It's I'm, my sense of self is intact. Like a ghost, like you, you just like <laughs> you're like haunting your own life almost in a right, spooky way. <laughs> way in a helpful way. Yeah, thank you so much. Girls. You're right. <laughs> With without the uh, the sheet and the the scary sounds. <laughs> yeah. I like that because I feel like when I was saying the barrier thing, that's almost defensive and like like shutting out or something but mm -hmm. i like the floating above is more peaceful and like letting go right right <laughs> shut everyone out right no that's that's really cool um, yeah because you're really not letting go of the other person you're you're letting go of control over the outcome yeah and that's what's important <laughs> that's so hard how would you, so if, if a couple is listening to this right now, what are some symptoms they could possibly see in their relationship that could help them like, di not diagnose, but like see themselves as having a codependent relationship that they maybe need to work on? Sure. Well, first I kind of want to get it out there that I don't believe any affliction, even this one is the person themselves it's, it's the behavior. It's a behavioral issue. Yeah. So it's not, not the whole person. So I kind of cringe a little bit when I hear, and I've said it a few times already on this podcast, shame on me, but it's force of habit. I'm trying to change that. But when, uh, when I hear other people say, oh, they're a codependent or, you know, that kind of thing, we are not our behavior. Our behavior is separate. And yeah. so let's just get that out there. Um, but I think most the most destructive symptom is the controlling behavior. Um, and that always seems to accompany codependency. And this controlling behavior can create chaos and frustration for those who are entering into a relationship with a person who displays codependent behavior. 
and the misunderstandings about the intention of the person displaying these behaviors. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it can be misconstrued as trust. Um, and in a sense, it is kind of trust, but at the same time, it's more the controlling behavior um, that that can be destructive. Megan and I have talked about this in previous episodes where some of the, the traits that we have a hard time swallowing have mm -hmm. to do with control and judgment when yeah. it comes to codependency, because we want to say that we're not those things. It's, yeah. it's the other person. They're, they're the ones yeah. who are triggering all this or, you know, or, I mean, I guess it's judgmental in, in a way of me saying that, but I'm saying like those two parts of codependency are really hard for someone who struggles with codependency to swallow about themselves in a sense. I don't know if that's right. 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 You know, because in general, people don't think of themselves or they don't want to think of themselves as being controlling. But again, you know, I, I separate those two things. You're not being controlling, but it's definitely controlling behavior that's driving um, everything when it comes to wanting to connect and wanting to stay close and having that fear that if you are not um, completely involved in this relationship and controlling everything that happens in this relationship, that you're, you're going to be left behind. So um, yeah. And then it, that's where the abandonment usually comes in, which, you know, is definitely harkened back to attachment issues okay yeah. i mean get off my back right <laughs> <laughs> everything you just said is exactly yeah. what i do and that is totally all of that is at the root and i was thinking too like is would you say that um this is something that is a repetitive behavior that i have in romantic relationships of asking the person what they're doing a lot um <laughs> me uh because <laughs> i, I want to make sure that they're not doing something that is going to piss me off <laughs> oh yeah well i mean it feels controlling but the threat level for you is high the mm -hmm. threat level of actually losing the relationship is what drives that the threat level of being left alone being abandoned being rejected all of those things that definitely comes from childhood and and a lot of attachment injuries you know and it, it they're very closely connected so um yes i it it does look like you're being controlling and that you're even needy you know when when you're doing that but really i mean your intent is to pull that relationship even closer into you pull that person even closer into you so it just it's so counterproductive when you think about those two things you're pushing somebody away at the same time that you're really trying to get them to come closer exactly and then when they get upset that's what i say I'm like i want to be close to you why would you not want to tell me what you're doing <laughs> you know <laughs> which it doesn't fall right on the other person's ears it doesn't make sense if you want to be close to me then why are you harassing me don't badger me like that yeah. yes, yes. Means, i'm not saying it isn't my bad it's just funny in the moment i really believe that i'm like why yeah. would you not want me to ask you that <laughs> seriously yes. yeah but you know there's also that element of trust too because like megan and i have talked about this and we have both admitted that we do have trust issues mm -hmm. but i mean sometimes we're like right about that like if we call someone out and we're like what are you up to and they confirm that they're either hanging out with the people that they know would make us uncomfortable or hanging out with that one girl or guy who is flirty with them and and they they're taking advantage of this time away from you that that's been confirmed a few times i mean yeah. i well unfortunately it really does it can it can result in driving the other person to behaviors places people or things that that they know are out of your control at that time and you know it's part of not wanting to be controlled and that whole rebellion thing that we do as human beings when we don't want to follow the rules. Um, so it, it can come into play, you know, in the relationship 
in terms of, you know, you want me to be a certain person, you want me to react to you in a certain way, and I'm going to do just the opposite so that I can show you that you're not controlling me. Yep. And again, yeah. this leads into our next question. Do codependents often latch on to that type of person who might be avoidant or might be like respond that way that you just explained exactly. yeah. to our like needy quote unquote behavior? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. Um, well, I don't think that they set out to find people who are dependent upon codependents re rescuing behaviors. Um, which is why it can be so hard for a codependent person to actually latch on, you know? So I think, unfortunately, people who have codependent traits have a harder time with relationships startup, or at least getting beyond the first few dates without the symptoms of codependency creeping in, um, which a lot of times really turns people off. So in other words, the rescuing or controlling behaviors usually start creeping in after the first few dates. So the latching on part, you know, can be very rocky startup. Yeah. We call it a glom on. <laughs> <laughs> That's what? a good way to put it. <laughs> so, so what would you suggest uh, a codependent, someone who struggles with codependency do to break out of these cycles that get uh, stuck with the same patterns and people over and over? Well, you know, I am biased and I'm going to say the obvious here, go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, first, they must recognize their own issues with codependency and face the prospect that they need some support. Codependency can wreak havoc on those who suffer from it, from depression to, yep, substance abuse to GAD. Um, generalized anxiety disorder. So the first thing I would suggest is to find support through CODA meetings, of course, um, or through a trusted family member or through their own personal therapy. Um, but in addition to finding support, what seems to be the best approach to treating codependency is digging very deep into mindfulness practices. Um, and I know that sounds kind of like, ugh, boring cliche. Everybody says, get mindful. But, you know, there's a reason why people talk about it. It's because it works. It retrains those neurons um, in, a, in a really good way so you can be more present. Um, get, getting in touch with self, which is super important because this is what's lost in the process of codependency is your sense of self. So it's typically completely buried in the codependent person, um, that sense of self. So that has to, that has to take place. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy is very helpful in quelling the obsessive thoughts and behaviors. And of course, the most powerful intervention is that you must find who you are, <clears throat> excuse me, deep down inside. So it's that person who's buried in all of this um, that, that you're looking for. And self-care is a very big step in keeping the codependent grounded. Um, I personally use an intervention in my practice called Peaceful Place. It's actually part of an EMDR um, tenant that I, I do the work for clients, you know, that are deeply set in traumatic experiences from childhood. So, and it's a guided meditation and it incorporates uh, bringing in nurturing figures and, and it helps to repair attachment injuries, which I firmly believe is tied to a loss of our basic sense of self. So, you know, in the end, there's only one person we can ever change in this world. Uh, as Crystal Mazzola notes in her book, codependent uh, workbook, the five steps to recovery. Um <laughs> So who is this person, this one person that we can change? I'll give you, I'll give you a guess. No one but ourselves, right? It's just our. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you may have also had 
uh, have to be prepared to maybe lose some friends through the process of setting healthy boundaries. But healthy boundaries are a big part of recovery from having codependent behaviors. And then, you know, if you lose friends through the process of, of setting boundaries, you know, at least you kind of know if that person was ever going to be able to have a loving, healthy, inter interdependent, not dependent, but interdependent relationship with you. Or if they were going to, you know, it's, you're going to have to be giving up pieces of self to accommodate the relationship. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I do feel frustrated. Like when I think oh, I have to get meditating, I have to do that, like self care, you know, find my inner peace stuff. Um, but every time I'm on a kick of doing that. I feel so much better. My codependent behaviors are down. I, you know, I'm way more at peace. My anxiety is not up to an 11, you know, totally. Um, <laughs> I, it's, and it's funny because it's like, I believe it, I've seen it, but even when you get out of the practice of it, even though, you know, it works, you're like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and especially when you're spiraling, it's like the last thing you want to do is just stop for a second so you can regroup and reprocess because when you're in that spiral and you're deep in it you just want to you want to experience that and that alone you don't want to think about mindfulness it's like the last thing you want to get into right yeah. that is so true and it's like anything that we learn growing up like brushing your teeth every day you know you have to like make it a part of that kind of routine yeah. um where you can just stop and and understand that you might be feeling triggered. You have to be able to recognize the triggers and how that feels in your body and whether or not you're kind of leaving your body at that moment, disassociating because you're not being mindful um, and bring those all back to groundedness. Yeah. Yep. So you do peaceful place with your clients. Is that something we could do on our own or like what type of uh, mindfulness practices would you recommend people do in their own like day-to-day -day routine? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I have taught my clients how to take that with them and actually ask them to give it a name, a name that means something to them. And then they create whatever this peaceful place is. They can go in it for three minutes, five minutes, however long it takes to calm the whole system, the polyvagal nerve, everything is so activated when we are uh, deep in worrying about a relationship or trying to change the behavior of somebody else and not focused inward. So it's only when we're focused inward that we stop trying to focus on somebody else or somebody else's behavior or changing a relationship. Um, so yeah, I, peaceful place can be done uh, individually after you learn and understand what it is. Um, and also I recommend square breathing, which is counting to four breathing, holding your breath for four um, and then blowing out and then doing that four times because that really gets the neurons firing in a whole different direction. Uh, and that's good. So um those are those are kind of some of the things that that can help to stave it off before it becomes a spiraling out of control situation. Yeah, I mean, I know it's it's funny because it's like all the things we're talking about when it comes to mindfulness, meditation practices, all that, that even the breathing, it just seems so simple that all I think a lot of us just dismiss that as like, that's not going to help me right now. Like, but it truly is. I mean, it's so crazy mm -hmm. how just breath work alone and regulating your breath to like a normal pace. Uh, I don't think people realize that they're like, like just. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's right. Yeah. Especially if we become disconnected from our bodies when our, when we are so living in our head and concentrating on something that has nothing to do with our own sense of self then we can lose touch with our, our own body, believe it or not. Yes, absolutely. Um, as you had mentioned with EMDR, with like trauma responses and whatnot, um, 
when it comes to codependency, would you say like, is it stemmed from childhood? Could it come up later in your life? And what does the role of trauma play when it comes to all this? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's when a person grows up in a family system where there was maybe a chemically dependent family member, such as a parent, um, the child really learns uh that it's better to put aside their own needs in order to take care of their sick or addicted parent. So that's kind of how it props up. Um, so, you know, they do that because so the parent can in turn take care of them. Um, and then the cycle of rescuing behavior begins from there. Um, yeah. And chemical dependency creates a vacuum of behaviors when a partner or family member is suffering from it and the anxiety that comes up with chemical dependency can lead to a strong pull to control the chemically addicted person to make everything okay again, bring back homeostasis, you know, which means the family's functioning in the way the family always does, even if that's dysfunctional. So um, sometimes it becomes a vicious cycle when the existing codependent traits of a person have led them to abusing drugs and alcohol, which have created this codependency on others. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. What if, what if you didn't have an addicted parent growing up? Like if you didn't have addiction in your family, you struggle with codependency. Um, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't have to be that you have an addicted, addictive or, you know, um, dependent parent on drugs or alcohol, but it really can be that you um, have lost your sense of self through uh, not actually getting a reflection of who you are, which we always get a reflection of who we are, building our sense of self when we are really small, just growing up. And that reflection always comes from a trusted, nurturing family member. So that that's along the, the lines of attachment there, you know. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's important to note only because of what we discussed earlier in the episode too, of just how it's not always stemmed from addictive family members or things like that and how it shows up in multitude of ways in our lives. I, it still can stem from childhood, even if you didn't have a parent or a sibling who was addicted to any substances, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, the interesting thing about childhood trauma, which is what we're actually talking about here, is that we all have it. Yeah. So whether whether we realize it or not, it's there. And trauma goes all the way back to pre-verbal, pre even pre-birth, believe it or not. There's a lot of studies that are being done on how far back trauma can actually go back. Um, and it may not be the type of trauma that we've been conditioned to understand, like being in a car accident or witnessing something really terrible. But trauma can happen in other ways, such as child neglect or a parent who just wasn't completely emotionally present, um, or even growing up in a very structured and stiff environment where we weren't able to discover who we really were and needed to play some type of role in the family system. So um, these, these are all some examples of what can create a diversion to really understanding who you are at the core. Um, yeah. So the answer to, you know, can codependency develop later in life? Yeah, it can. But in the research and training I've done, even when it develops later in life, it also stems from an earlier learned behavior of survival. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because that makes sense. I mean, you're looking at your, whoever is raising you as usually one of you know, the only people in the world when you're young, right? So you yeah. how to relate to people and how people relate to you and what you have to do in order to get your needs met. Mm -hmm. That totally makes sense. So, I mean, for example, like if you had an extremely anxious parent or like one parent was really anxious and an enabler to the other parent who even if wasn't addicted was like, you know, withholding and mood changing all the time. And, you know, they had their little codependent dance going and then the anxious one would try to get you to do what they were doing because they know you and they are going to be treated better if you do that. So then you just follow in line, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. 
you know, and, and what's important to understand too, is that, you know, we have been talking about chemical or substance abuse here too, but what, what, what happens when a parent is under the influence, the child doesn't still doesn't get a reflection of who they are. They don't get that interaction. The attachment injuries are all over the place in that, in that case. So whether or not there's substance abuse going on or not, if a parent is detached or disconnected in some way or preoccupied, as you just said, Megan, that's that that is the same result as as if somebody were, you know, under the influence. That's yeah, that's yeah. a good point. It just shows up differently, right? Yeah, it shows up differently, exactly. Interesting. That makes sense. I mean, if you're comfortable sharing are there any ways that codependency shows up in your life? Do you ever struggle with that? Sure. Sure. Yes. Um, I don't mind sharing. Um, thank you for asking that question. Yeah. So in my family, there were, there were substance abuse issues. So just so happened that there were, um, with certain family members. And I've always been aware that I suffer some degree of codependent behaviors as do many, many people. Um, I was also the youngest of four children, which means I was often passed off to my to the sister closest to me in age to kind of take care of me and watch over me. So I learned how to be needy because I knew that my sister would respond to my needs and I didn't have to really think too much for myself. Um, so I was sort of addicted to getting my needs met before even asking um, so at times I would forget, I do forget how to adult, if you will, <laughs> and started to notice my own controlling behaviors in my relationship with my husband, uh, just to get a response so that I know he's okay. I mean, that's one of the big things that people who have codependent behavior will do is constantly checking in, asking what's wrong, what's wrong, what did I do, you know, and, and trying to figure out how to continue the process of keeping this person close to them. So, but he would inevitably look at me as though I must be hearing things because he never said anything was wrong, right? Um, then I have to become very mindful of my own presence in the world and use my cognitive abilities to understand why I had a need to ask him this question in the first place when he never said anything was wrong. Um, so I realized that my role in the family as the youngest child, basically being cared for my, by my sister that was not much older than me, created a vacuum from which I had no choice but to become totally dependent without a true sense of my own self reflected back to me. So, um, yes, I. long story short, I, I definitely see some tendencies and behaviors that I have that um, I have to, you know, get mindful about and do my self-care routines and just, just to make sure that I'm not reverting back to that, that feeling of dependency. Yeah. The whole uh, what's wrong thing, you know, like I do that often too, with like, not just in relationships, but like yeah, just friendships. And even you, mom, sometimes like growing up, I remember there were times where I would just be like, what's wrong? And you know, you're like, nothing. <laughs> nothing. <I'm> tired. <laughs> right. You know, so I know what that, what that's like. And sometimes yes. I don't even directly ask what's wrong. I'll say something like a inside joke or I'll say something. And then I will, I will like get my little detective glasses out and <laughs> like go through their response to be like was it normal <laughs> are, are we cool <laughs> yes yeah that's very common too right just that behavior. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that reassurance that we need so much right for sure so how do we begin to like work on our self-esteem and how do we learn to like actually love ourselves you know help us <laughs> help you okay well I don't have all the answers but I can certainly say 
that first of all, the same compassion that we have for others is the compassion that we must apply to ourselves. I mean, to me, that's logical and makes sense, but it's a little harder than what it, how it sounds. Yeah. 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 So getting back in touch with your own needs, desires, your dreams, honoring yourself in ways that you've never done. Um, gaining a fuller understanding that you have lived with repressed feelings and emotions and, and needs. And these need to be explored and processed through. So cognitive thought processes are the most important component to healing um, through actively gaining an understanding of the behavior and having the ability to externalize it away from who you really are. Um, once you begin to say the words, I am codependent on other people to fulfill me. Okay, that, that doesn't say that I am a codependent, but it's the behavior. I am codependent on other people to fulfill me. And really understand that and get truly cognitive about that. Um, then you can start the process of understanding your own behaviors. I mean, hey, Rome wasn't built in a day. So changing behavior is a lifelong process. But it's crucial to healing. And we really have to honor that little person that's still inside you. The one that grew up seeing codependency or learning how to be codependent giving that little person grace and the same love that you might give to say a niece or your own child or someone you currently love. So it can be done, but you have to do the work and you have to recognize it. That's a really great point. And it actually reminds me of a TikTok I just saw the other day um, where this guy was trying to explain the concept of loving ourselves, because I think so many of us struggle with this concept. Like, what does that even look like? And the way he described it is um, pretend like you switched bodies with like, think of one person in your life that you love the most, like your mom, a sibling or something. And then imagine that you guys that you took over their body for a year. Like, how would you treat it? How would you treat the people around you? How would you treat that body? Um, would you treat it lovingly? Or would you just let it go to shit I mean or you know and that's just like a simple example but he talks about like you know what would you do to better their lives like if they had struggles in this way or this way would you go out of your way to like help help them with those bills or do this or whatever you would do to like lovingly treat that person while you're in their body that's exactly how you should be treating yourself and I don't know why but that like completely clicked for me in a different way I had not even thought about yeah 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 and that is really the art of externalization and I mean good point Brooke because that does bring it home to you know we do have a job to do and that is to find that little person inside of us and and really nurture them you know um because that's something that was missed yeah. mm-hmm yeah, that's a great point. Mm. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so hard. Like all of this, yeah. it makes sense yeah. logically, but like putting it to practice is, is another thing, you know? You know, but like I said before, Rome wasn't built in a day. It's going to take time. And you've, you've lived this way for how many years? Isn't, is it, I mean, is it worth it to start with one small change? and really hone in on it and get it down pat and then go on to the next small change and keep doing that. That's what I tell my clients. We're not going to get all of this worked out in one session or two sessions. It's going to, it's going to take time for us to work on each piece of this, because if you really break this down, there's a lot of pieces to it. Yeah. But I'm impatient. <laughs> <laughs> We're the Instagram generation. Breathe. Just breathe, Brooke. <laughs> All right. So that leads us to our final question when we wrap this up here, which how do we begin to heal and cope? I mean, I know you've you've given us some strategies for mindfulness and whatnot, but yeah, healing and coping. What what was what are some coping strategies on top of that would you suggest? Uh, well, 
we'll get into that. I wanted to start with, you know, self-differentiation can be a difficult concept because when a codependent person starts to discover themselves again and begin to live their own lives, it can feel lonely and scary at first. Yeah. Right. Right. So if you've even dabbled in that, you know, trying to detach and really explore sense of self, you notice that the first thing is it's, it can be a little uncomfortable because it feels a little lonely. You don't have anybody else to focus on. So, you know, you, you're forced to kind of go within, right? Um, Yeah. But detaching doesn't mean separating yourself from the world or the person that you're codependent with. It simply means understanding how to bring your whole self to the relationship. So a sort of integration of who you are as a whole, and that includes mind, body, soul, and heart. Well, you can't get to mind unless you're mindful. You can't get to body unless you feel it. Well, how are you going to do that? Yoga, meditation, um, going inside, concentrating on where you're feeling the anxiety, where you're feeling the depression, where are you feeling the need to get your to get your needs met through this codependent relationship, um, really focusing on where that is in your body. Um, and then, of course, exploring your soul. What is your purpose? Who are you and your heart? Um, what what is it that you know about yourself as a person that has value um, and and th- that is important to protect? So. Codependent people or codependent behaviors in people tend, you know, people tend to think that if they detach, they'll be doing um, those that they're attached to kind of a disservice, you know, but it's truly just the opposite of that. Um, While you're meeting all their needs and being enmeshed with them, you're actually making them a little bit more helpless. So knowing this can help you to understand the importance of your role in other people's lives. Um, And if you're not bringing goodness and a sense of peace, a sense of autonomy to that person's life, then you're simply adding to that person's suffering. Mm -hmm. And in this way, having a codependent, having codependent behaviors in a relationship is actually hurting both of you in a number of ways. That's a good point. Yeah. What about like, well, so you were just saying, um, it can feel lonely and uncomfortable. Definitely. Yeah. And then you experience that and you think, Oh, I'm pulling back. So I'm doing them a disservice. I also sometimes feel like, um, the worst has happened. We're separated. Um, no one's going to love me. (laughs) You know, like, like, I've lost something I can never regain yeah, or something like that. That really is my main feeling. Would you say that the body work, the meditation, getting to myself, those are the strategies to use when I feel that? Absolutely. Without a doubt, because really you're, you're experiencing um, ignoring of the self, not being engaged with the sense of self. So once you pull it back to finding out, you know, what, where your sense of self is and how you relate to it um, and how you present that to the world, once you have been able to even tap on that, even just a little bit, some of that pain will definitely subside, that pain of not having that other person to be connected to having the need to have that, you know, um, closeness, that, that ability to relate with somebody else you're during the whole time that you are, uh, mourning that or adjusting to the detachment. Um, if you're not fully able to go inside of self at that point and rediscover who you are, um, then you're, it's going to remain uncomfortable 
until you get in touch with who you are inside. So that that is definitely the the most important intervention. That's something that has to be worked on daily, even in small doses. And it has to happen through those steps, the, the mindfulness and the, and the ability to calm your central nervous system down and the cognitive behavioral activities that, that you have to employ um, and just really becoming whole with yourself. It's hard. I mean, it feels like a gaping hole when you are lose that connection, when you're so yeah. connected to that person. And it feels like in that moment that nothing could fulfill that for you, you know, and then you're looking for something else to fill it. And that's where we get into those pitfalls of relying on maybe substances we shouldn't or just doing other behaviors that get us away from that fulfillment. But what you're yeah. saying is totally true, which is we have the power to fulfill that for ourselves it yeah. just it you know it takes a lot of mindfulness and self-love that I'm not at yet <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know again I will stress that that's one step at a time and with some of my clients that we're working on this very subject right now is it, it is that one small step to start making you feel better and it's got to be a habit and it has to be honored and there has to be a time slot in your day or in your night that you can just carve away 10 minutes 15 minutes we stand in line at starbucks for longer than that come on you know and just really like get in touch and pull yourself in and feel your body and calm calm your entire system that is that is one way to begin this process of healing um, and, and it's not going to, all of a sudden, you're just going to, you know, go out into the world and be like, oh, I'm totally fine. I'm not sad about this relationship. No, you know, the processes are there for a reason. And you do have to process that sadness and, and, and even honor it and let it be there. Um, but it's, it's part of the journey, yeah. um, to healing. When I am doing those mindfulness techniques, I'll finish and I'll say, I'll just repeat to myself, like, okay, the goal was not to not feel sad. The goal was not mm -hmm. to not feel uncomfortable because doing it one day is not going to make me not feel uncomfortable, you know? Um, but I, I want that. Yeah. So when I'm done, I'm like, why don't I not feel uncomfortable? I'm yeah. never doing this again. So I just have to remind myself, like, it's a building blocks. It's it like is. working out, right? It's like you go do a workout and you're like, why didn't I lose 20 pounds in that workout? That's <laughs> right, how right. Yeah, right. Are you serious? I don't see anything. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or or you plan on like eating better, more nutrition, you know, getting more nutrition in your body. But then, so you have salads all day, one day, and then the next day you wake up and say, you know what? It's not working. I'm tired. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, of course not. It's been one day, you know, Oh, the human experience. We just want it. Yeah. Like that. We I, do. I am so hard. Like I always give Megan so much credit for having the discipline she does. Cause usually she's really like good, like regimented. She can keep things going for, <laughs> you know, like she doesn't give up the way I do. Like literally I just, I lose patience so quickly with something. When I try mm -hmm. something new, I just do it the one time and I'm like, <gasps> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know what, Brooke, that's basically just having trust in the process. I think, I think your trust leaves you when you don't see a change. It's all, all of a sudden you don't trust in the process and you have to just remember that that is, you have to see the evidence, you know, you can't just uh, put a judgment on something because you haven't seen it quick quickly enough. So you have to trust the process. Trust. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, right. That's one of the most challenging things to do for codependent behavior. <laughs> my worst enemy, oh my the, the T word. Trusting. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. This has been so amazing and enlightening, Lorraine. Thank you so much. Honestly. For this was oh, a good conversation. You. Even if it, you know, wasn't for the pod, which it is in this case, but I'm saying just it was so helpful, I think, for both of us to like 
get a lot of these questions answered and get a different perspective other than our, our own. <laughs> you know, and it's wonderful what you guys are doing, really bringing a, a different kind of a, a light to this subject that people can understand it better so that they're not afraid to explore it. Um, I think that that's really important. So I give you guys all kinds of kudos for doing that. Thank you. Well, thank you. And on that note, we have one last question for you. Okay. Better not be too hard. <laughs> it might be. Yeah. Do, do you like us? <laughs> I absolutely do. <laughs> but you don't need me to tell you that. Do you like you? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm working on it. I'm going to yeah. go meditate about it. Yeah. <laughs> good. Good. Some strategies. All right. Well, we'll see you um, next time. Pod. What are we calling our listeners? Just listeners? I guess. It's so boring. I know. Right? We'll think of something. Yeah. Lorraine, we'll have to have you back on. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Yeah. Same to you guys. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mama. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, daughter. <laughs> Talk to you guys later. <laughs>